Thank you. Well, good morning. We are in a new series for summer on the book of James. So if you will open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Yeah, somebody's ready. Oh, yes. Okay, if it's the blue Bibles in the baskets, it's going to be page 1043. All right. Um, we started the series last Sunday, so just I'm going to do a quick recap while you're finding it in your Bibles. But um, it is believed that this letter that we're going to be reading is written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, we believe what the Bible teaches, that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary when she was a virgin. She conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit, gave birth to Jesus. God told Joseph in a dream to take Mary as his wife and care for her child, and he did so. But they were married. They went on and had other children. And, and so last week we looked at those verses about Jesus' siblings and um, what it must have been like for James to grow up with Jesus as his older brother. And so if you're interested in that, listen to last week. But um, 1 Corinthians 15.7 records that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to James. And in the book of Acts, we learn more about James, that he was with the first group of believers who were praying every day in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. And he was a leader in that first church. Peter was kind of considered the founder because he gave the big sermon where 3,000 people were saved. But then persecution broke out. And people, Christians started fleeing, including Peter. He went to Joppa and started preaching in other places. But it was James who stayed there and cared for the persecuted Christians and led that first Christian church. One of the things you'll notice as we study his letter is that he simplifies what it means to be a Christian. That's one of the beautiful things about it. He just simplifies it. He discusses a lot of the same themes that Jesus discussed in his Sermon on the Mount. He uses the same kind of speech patterns and grammar. It's very obvious that James closely watched his older brother. He speaks like him. And over and over, he kind of just seems to imply, guys, look, following Jesus is about being like Jesus. And he just simplifies it for us. It doesn't mean that he makes it unchallenging though <laughs> that's the other thing about james so let's let's read james chapter one starting verse one this is how he introduces himself james a servant of god and of the lord jesus christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations i mentioned this last week it, it's just worth briefly mentioning again james doesn't name drop he could say James, the brother of Jesus. He could say James, the leader of the first Christian church. James, the leader of the persecuted church. He, he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he simply calls himself a servant of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. This word that he uses for servant, in the Greek it's doulos. It means like a bond servant or bond slave. And we really don't have a good English word to describe what this is. In the Old Testament, uh, God gave, he did not allow the Jews to practice slavery as we know it. He gave them some form of debt repayment plan. And sometimes the Bible will call it servitude, sometimes it will call it slavery. It's really not either. 
um, this is what God told him, that if somebody fell into deep debt, instead of going to prison, he could choose to become a servant and work off his debt. And how long he would have to work depended on the size of the debt. But no matter how huge that debt was, all debts were paid in six years. All debts were paid off by six years. And then when they were free, the master had to send them with resources, with money, enough so that they could reestablish their lives and not immediately fall into debt again. And God gave them other rules, like um, the master could not abuse the indebted person in any way, especially no physical abuse. If so, the debt would be canceled and the person would go free. Um, the master had to give the indebted person Sabbath. He couldn't overwork the person. There were all kinds of rules like that. Um, so like I said, we don't really have a good English word for this, but if you read your Old Testament and it says slavery, just know it's not the kind of slavery that we think of, okay? Um, but in Exodus 21, one of the interesting things that God said is at the end of the time where the person has worked off their debt, which is a max of six years, if after that they say, you know, instead of going free, I love my master. And working for him is a really good job. He provides for me. I love his family. That person can choose to be a servant for life. And they call that a bond servant. And that's what James calls himself. James realized he had a debt of sin. And he saw Jesus pay for that debt. Amen. He saw Jesus buy his freedom. And he said, instead of taking my freedom and running, I'm choosing to be a slave for life to the one who buyed my freedom. That's how he introduces himself. And it's this James that then writes to Christians. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I skipped something. I'm going to back up just a quick second. One of the reasons I wanted you to know that is because one of the best proofs that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's God, come in the flesh, died for our sins, rose again. One of the best proofs for that is actually the life of James. And think about this. We have several records about James. There's the gospel records, there's this letter, there's other church documents from history. There's Roman history that documents James. Um, Josephus was a Roman Jewish historian. He wrote The Antiquities of the Jews. It was this great history of the Jewish people. In book 20, chapter 9, paragraph 1, Josephus records, you can Google this if you want, that Jesus, the brother of James, who was believed, I'm sorry, that James, the brother of Jesus, who was believed to be God, was stoned to death by the Sanhedrin for his belief that his brother was God. How many of you believe your sibling is God? How many of you would be willing to die a brutal death for that belief? No sibling in, in history has ever been willing to do that. There's been some nutcases who have said they're God before, but their siblings weren't willing to die for it. Only Jesus' brothers were. And that's powerful proof from history. That Jesus is actually who he claimed to be. It's this James who persecuted and died for his belief that his older brother was God who writes to us. And he's writing to the Christians 
who were scattered. Many of them would have been at Pentecost and then they scattered because of the persecution. This is what he says. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James starts his letter kind of like Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount with the same subject matter, what our attitude should be during trials. Remember what Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. James starts and says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Both James and Jesus assumed you would face trials in this world. They assumed it. Which begs the question, why? Why does God allow us to face hardship and trial? The Bible is clear. God created this world good, right? He created us to rule over the animals. We weren't satisfied with that. We wanted to rule over each other. We wanted to rule over everything. We tried to wrestle control away from God in this rebellion. And and in doing so, we just broke everything. We broke it. And and the Bible says, you know, loneliness, isolation, the distance we have from God, the distance and the hardship in our own relationships, but even things like weeds. And, And the fact that the earth and the land does not produce the way it should is all a result of our sin. You guys, the Bible, when the Bible talks about sin and the wrong we do, it consistently portrays this picture that we underestimate its effects. That we tend to think, ah, it's not that big of a deal. But the Bible shows that sin has this destructive ripple effect that can go down for thousands of generations. So it's not God who causes the hardship and pain. Either directly or indirectly, our hardship and pain is a result of human sin. But the question is, why doesn't God stop it? Have you ever wondered that? Why doesn't he stop it? A week ago, I had an interesting conversation with my daughter and our friends. And um, they were commenting about how Hitler rose to power. And the astonishing thing is that he was elected into power because he was viewed to be exceptionally moral. I hope we can agree that Adolf Hitler was one of the most abusive and horrific leaders in modern history. Yet he campaigned on his morality, which he claimed was based on Christianity. Not true at all, but I want to... I never thought I'd quote Hitler, but I just want to read this to you for a minute. This is from his speech um, right after he was first elected German Chancellor. You could call it maybe his inaugural address. This is what he says. We nationalist leaders would vow before God, our conscience, and our people that we shall doggedly and with determination fulfill the mission entrusted to us as a national government. The national government will therefore 
regard as its first and supreme task to restore to the German people unity of mind and will. It will preserve and defend the foundations upon which our strength of our nation rests. It will take under its firm protection Christianity as the basis of our morality and the family as the nucleus of our nation and state. Adolf Hitler promised to protect Christianity as the moral foundation of his nation. Just got to let that one sink in for a minute. My friends, any leader who promises to get rid of your pain, and the German people were in a lot of pain because of the Great Depression and the First World War at this time, but any leader who promises to get rid of your pain by making people moral and by making people unified is a tyrant. There's no way to make people moral and unified. To get rid of all immorality in a land, everything like the cheating and the lying, all the hurtful things, to get rid of all that, to get rid of all division, a leader must preemptively stop people from doing wrong, must preemptively stop people from disagreeing with each other. And that kind of leader will always look like Adolf Hitler. Our God is not a tyrant. He's not a tyrant. He will not preemptively all stop all trouble and all division because he is merciful. We think God doesn't stop trial because he doesn't care. But actually, he doesn't stop all hardship because he is merciful. Do you really want a God who preemptively stops you and every other person every time you're about to do something wrong? And by the way, I, I do believe God stops a lot of trouble. I think he actually stops way more than he allows. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen that times that he puts just this protective barrier around me that I cannot be harmed by others or I can't do things that will be harmful. (laughs) He stopped me in my tracks sometimes. But he doesn't stop everything. He doesn't stop every hurtful thing in this world because to do so would require him to be a tyrant. So you're going to have trials in this world. But when you have trials, do not despair. Because our God is not only merciful, He is powerful. And He can redeem our trials and use them for good. That's what He promises to do. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if you lack wisdom, you can ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. God doesn't cause our trials, but he will use them to produce perseverance in us. Why do we need perseverance? Because we're going to have trials. Right? 
So we need to be able to persevere and endure through them and be strengthened by them. He says, by, through trials, we become mature and complete, not lacking anything. Which implies that if you don't have trials, you will be lacking in some things. What will you be lacking in if you don't have trials? Faith, yeah. There's, there's quite a few things. But one of them, I think, is wisdom. Because that's what he says in the very next verse, huh? If any of you lacks wisdom. Without trials, we lack wisdom. There's some things we can only know by experience them. Yeah. What is a person like who's never gone through any hardship? So selfish. <laughs> so selfish? Is that what you said? Self-centered? Yeah. What else? Spoiled? Naive, I think I heard someone say. It can be foolish. Judgmental. Yes. A person who has not gone through trials has a lack of compassion and understanding for others, huh? You know what else people who haven't gone through trials are? They're not joyful. Have you ever noticed that? Spoiled people. Not joyful. I am... I have formed a friendship with an African refugee church in Grand Rapids. I go about every other year to preach there. Um, I'm amazed by these people. They come from all different African countries. And um, I I spend the whole day with them. It's it's like a cross-cultural experience. My family has gone with me the last time. Um, But we worship with them all morning. And then we go to their homes and eat and meet their families and, and everything. And it's wonderful. Um, their stories are heroic. They all have stories about escaping war and famine and um, traveling by foot for months to get to refugee camps. Um, one, I was in a refugee camp for th- three years, but many of them had been much longer, and some of them up to 20 years lived in refugee camps before they were allowed to immigrate to the United States. They have so much joy. Like, I can't explain it. But they have so much joy. And they don't complain about... They have, they have a lot of problems as immigrants in the U.S. And they don't complain about the petty things that we Americans complain about. They just have so much joy. And it's not the fake joy we, we often hear about or experience have you have you ever met a person who um no matter what is happening in in their life if you say how are you doing they're like i'm blessed you 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 experienced those people before yeah they could have just like had their home closed their home foreclosed on or something or just diagnosed with cancer i'm blessed you know that's all they'll, they'll ever say that is not what james is talking about when he says to count it all joy when we face trials. He's talking about the same kind of joy that Jesus had when he faced trials. I have Jen Wilkin to thank for helping me put this together, but let's look at Hebrews. 
Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that refers to people of faith who have died and are with the Lord now, let us throw off everything that hinders and sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with what? Perseverance. This life is a race that has an ending and we run it with perseverance. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The pioneer and perfecting, perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Just let that phrase kind of sink in. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3. Consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When Jesus was beaten and whipped and he was carrying that cross through the streets of Jerusalem, he was like, I'm blessed! I'm blessed! No. He wasn't fake. He didn't like paint a happy clown face on. The night before his crucifixion, he wept. And he cried out to God and said, take this trial from me. And he wrestled with God the Father all night long and finally said, okay, not, not my will, but yours be done. And then he endured the next day of hell. Why? Yeah, because he loved us. Because of the joy that was set before him. Because he had faith that God would use his trial. Jesus had faith that God would raise him up from the dead. And exalt him to the highest place. And even more so, Jesus had faith that God would also raise you and I from the dead to eternal life. That was the joy that Jesus was counting on when he endured his trial. And that is the joy that we're to count on when we endure our trials. James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Sometimes I feel like um, one of the main parts of my job is just to stand up here every week and remind us all that while this life matters, it's not the only life we have. Amen. And there's another one coming. And we have hope because we have a God who is powerful and true and who loves us. Amen. My friends, people of faith and people who do not have faith in God go through trials. The difference is what do the trials produce in you? It's natural when you go through a trial to initially react with worry and doubt, sometimes even anger, definitely sadness. That's natural. But do you wallow in that? 
Do you let that become bitterness and resentment and cynicism in your life? You just kind of resign yourself to that fate. Um, Nothing I can do. Or do you actively persevere? I think of um, Eric's mom. I think of my grandma too. Um, My grandma and Eric's mom both met their spouses when they were like in elementary school. And basically dated, I think they started in seventh grade. Yeah, all the way up, got married, lived their whole lives with their spouses. And so when my grandma, um, when my grandpa died, my grandma had never lived without my grandpa. And she pretty much stopped living. Um, she cried every day and she just kind of stopped living. When my father-in-law died in a tragic accident, Eric's mom still cried every day. But she kept living. She persevered. She found purpose. She worked through the pain and she let it make God use it to make her stronger and wiser and so that she's now ministering and helping other people. Do you actively persevere in trials? Do you count the joy that God has set before you? Because when we're in a trial... We can taste the sweetness of our eternal life so much better. Do you count that joy? In trials, do you become self-reliant? Or do you become God-reliant? Seeking Him for wisdom. Next Sunday, we're going to dive into what James says about receiving wisdom from God. And I'm going to teach you what I know about how to discern God's wisdom for your life. So it's going to be very, very practical next Sunday. I hope you don't miss it. Um, But for today, I just wanted to encourage you that when you go through trials, first of all, you don't have to pretend like they don't hurt. Okay? They do. The pains of this world cut so deep that Jesus had to die on a cross. And I think sometimes when we minimize our pain, we minimize why Jesus had to die. So you don't have to pretend like it doesn't hurt. But don't wallow in it. Don't resign yourself to it. Actively persevere. And let God strengthen your faith. And make you a wiser person. Persevere by remembering the joy he sets before you. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just have to confess that I I don't always get you. I don't always get why you protect sometimes and other times you don't. I don't always get why you allow certain things. But I trust that you are good. And I thank you that you're merciful and you're not a tyrant. And God, I thank you that you're powerful, that no matter what we go through, you can bring good out of it. And so, God, we just commit ourselves to you. 
And whatever it is we're going through, we just place it in your hands. And God, we say, we're not going to rely on ourselves. (laughs) But we want to rely on you. Increase our faith. And God, increase our faith. And help us to discern your wisdom and how to persevere through the trials to become the people you're creating us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, As we go through this series in the summer, I'm going to ask you to read James, okay? So for this next week, I want you to read James chapter 1. If you're thinking, oh man, a whole chapter, it's like less than 30 sentences. All right? (laughs) You can handle that. James chapter 1. And on the front cover of your bulletin, it lists memory verses. We haven't really done memory verses before, but James is just packed with some amazing verses. Some verses that I have put to heart, and God has brought them to my mind to direct me at critical points in my life. And so I'm going to challenge you through the summer. Those aren't like all the memory verses for this next week. Those are your memory verses for the summer, okay? So work on those because... They will bear good fruit in your life. All right? Thank you.